Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Didn't the Federation give me a mission and a purpose? Yes. Didn't the Federation give me a place and a family? Yes. Didn't my crew and I risk our lives and work together in the past to save all sentient life in the universe? That is true. And isn't it true that the only reason we are all sitting here today is because the Federation gave me and the crew of the USS Discovery the resources and the mandate to solve the biggest, most troublesome problems in the galaxy? Yes. Okay, we're at the halfway mark, which actually makes me a little sad on Discovery because we just had episode seven, which means that's that was the halfway mark episode. So now we just have a half season left, Dan. So I'm actually kind of thrilled the fact that we actually, you know, do have a half a season left and not less than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, six episodes left. So, uh, yeah, really excited for uh, continuing the story of Discovery. But like you... I'm I'm shocked that it's gone by so quickly. Absolutely. Yeah, but uh, it's getting good. That's all I have to say. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Positively Trek. I'm Bruce Gibson with Dan Gunther. And Dan, how are you doing today? Not too bad. I really enjoyed this week's episode of Discovery. Spoiler alert. So I'm coming off of that. Really excited and giddy to talk about it. So. Well, since we both said we liked the episode, I don't think there's anything more we have to say. Uh, thank you for joining us on today's episode. No, I'm kidding. Of course, we're going to dive deep into it with spoilers. So that's your warning right now. You have to have watched the episode in order to appreciate this episode. But we're not going to do this alone. We're actually going to invite a guest with us. And that guest is Matthew Kaplowitz. How are you doing? Greetings and salutations, Bruce and Dan, Positively Trek listeners. Thank you for having me here today. Very excited to talk about this episode also because, you know, we are at the halfway point. It's been a really strong season so far. I got to say, like, I'm really impressed with how things are going. I think they've learned a lot from their mistakes in the past two seasons, some of their shortcomings. And uh, it's been really, really great so far. So I'm very excited to see how it's all going to end up. Well, thank you for joining us. You're from the podcast Trek Untold. Just tell us briefly what that podcast is about. So Trek Untold is a weekly interview series that I do on iTunes, it's available iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all the places, also on YouTube. And what we do each week is we talk to different character actors, stunt performers, behind the scenes crew, writers, pretty much everybody that's involved in the Star Trek universe whose name isn't in the opening credits typically. So it's about kind of putting the spotlight on them, on their career, uh, explaining the hows and whys of what they do, uh, trying to learn a little bit about them and just expand all the Star Trek fans out there's knowledge of who these folks are. Nice, nice. Well, we're going to find out more about that on our next episode, episode 67. We'll dive more into your podcast and find out who some of the interesting guests you've had on that podcast. But before we do that, we are going to, on this episode, go through episode seven of season three of Discovery, which is called Unification Three. Now, I looked at past episodes of Discovery and nowhere did I find in Unification One 
or two. Where 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 are those episodes, Dan? <laughs> well, you'll have to, of course, go all the way back to season five of Star Trek: The Next Generation, uh, which I did the other night, by the way, and rewatched them. Love them. Uh, you might know them as the Spock two-parter, uh, where Leonard Nimoy guest starred as Spock, and we learned all about his efforts at Vulcan Romulan unification. And this is basically a sequel to those episodes, which is really cool. Yeah, so I'm going into this episode before seeing it, having seen Unification 1 and 2. And Matthew, I assume you have too. So what were your expectations going into Unification 3? I wasn't really sure what to expect from it, to be totally honest, because it's been so many years, really, in the timeline that Unification 1 and 2 did happen. Uh, and I was kind of surprised to see them doing that callback. So uh, I don't really know necessarily if, you know, we'll talk about this later on in the show, I'm sure, but I don't really know if I necessarily agree with titling it that. But uh, it was definitely interesting to see them reuse the unification title. And uh, it definitely be, it does paint a picture very early on of what we're going to get from this episode. Yeah. And we had uh, Kirsten Beyer on the show a couple of weeks ago who wrote this episode. And I think it was after the show, Dan asked her about Unification 3 and she wouldn't tell us anything. <laughs> <laughs> I basically asked her to confirm, is that actually the title? And I, I feel like she kind of smirked a little bit. I heard it in her voice and she's like, yep, that's the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't sure what we were going to get either. I didn't know how closely connected it would be or if it would have anything to do with Vulcans and Romulans, except when we started to see footage or previews for the episode, then that confirmed it. But prior to that, maybe it's another type of unification that works in the same manner. I, I didn't know. It have just been like Angel 1, but now it's Unification 3. So maybe we missed the other Angel 1s also, Angel 2, Angel 3. I don't know, but that's what we got this week. <laughs> well, let's dive into this episode. The one thing I want to mention is we're going to hit on some of the story points of this, go into then the characters and then kind of round things up at the end of our feelings for the whole episode. And of course we will touch on Tilly towards the end of the episode. I save that for later because I really want to focus more on the big storyline of this and starting off with this experimental project called SB19. There's this project that was being developed on Vulcan or Navarre, whatever we want to call it right now, but that allows starships to travel across thousands of light years, just in an instant, almost like the spore drive, but with a different technology. So as Tilly and Burnham are kind of researching the data they have, they find that there's these three ships that are destroyed at a millionth of a microsecond of each other. And they feel that this experimental SB-19 that has been gathering data through that project might have some more information. So Dan, what did you think of this concept? Because I was like, really a millionth of a microsecond difference is really that revealing? Well, yeah, because as they say in the show, it, it reveals that there's a point of origin for this effect, right? Like that it's spreading out and not hitting everything at once. So it's not simultaneous. There's kind of an offset. I, I thought this was interesting. I thought maybe the episode would be going in a certain direction that, you know, Starfleet, I thought, would obviously have access to this data but because, you know, maybe the Admiral or, or something, they're covering something up and it's all nefarious and we wouldn't find that out. Of course, the episode is, has given us a different direction for that. But yeah, initially I was thinking, yeah, this is the sign of a, a cover. Maybe it's a Section 31 thing or something like that. But uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. 
I, I'm still kind of focused on the fact that it's like that one that little tiny minute number. Uh, it's still very much a Star Trek kind of thing to do, have something be that that small, because at that point, you know, I imagine units of measurement are very different from what they are right now in our current timeline. But yeah, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the heck the cause of the burn was. I, I, based on all, I guess, the acting choices that we've seen so far, like it felt like there might have been a cover up. But on the other hand, yeah, I don't know. It's still anybody's guess. Well, even previews we saw for the next episode, looks like we're going to that point of origin pretty quickly. We're not taking the whole season to finally get there. So that is exciting to me because I feel like we're going to get that development pretty quickly. It's a very fast-paced season. It's, it's been really good in that regard and that we're getting information very quickly. There's not really much filler and even the filler that there's been, it's been really easy to sit through. It's been really easy to watch. So yeah, USS Yelchin, that stood out to me when they were naming the three ships because of Anton Yelchin, who played Chekhov in the Kelvin Timeline movie. So that was a nice honor towards him. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was a really nice touch. And and I kind of did a little like gasp at that moment and, and had to, you know, like pause and, and uh, explain to the person I was watching with what that was about and the significance of it. So that was really cool. Now, did you catch that, Matthew, when you saw it? I did. I've been enjoying some of the fan service they've been doing this season. I feel like they're starting to reach out a little bit more to the fans, like, you know, between that and some of the stuff we saw on Lower Decks. They're being a little bit more meta these days, which I, I really enjoy. It's, it's nice to have those shout outs for us. And uh, the only downside is like trying to avoid spoilers now is even harder this season because there's like so many little Easter eggs keep popping up and everybody wants to be like, oh, my God, look at this. So that, that's been just the one downside of these really awesome little moments. There's a pride that I have in myself when I watch these episodes and I catch little little nuggets little Easter eggs like that in the episode. And I think, oh, look at me. I got that. Ooh, I recognize that. I really am a good Trekkie. And then I'm thinking, okay, but what am I missing? There's probably other stuff in here that I should know that I'm not catching. But speaking of names, I freaked out when I found out the new name of Vulcan is Navarre. And for the reason of the fact that Vulcans and Romulans have unified as was the purpose of the mission that Spock was on, in unification one and two. So Matthew, did you have a geek out moment like I did? <laughs> uh, a little bit. Yeah. At that point I was still in my head, like trying to just deal with the fact that they were together. And I was actually very much enjoying uh, more so that reaction that Michael Burnham had when she found out the news. Cause that was like just a real great piece of acting there from Sonequa. Um, so that, that was more my thing was just like seeing like the actual ecstatic joy in her face and like how believable that felt. Uh, it, it felt like a real, real deep moment for her. Uh, and the fact that also she just got dumped all that information at once about what happened to Rhymelands and the fact that oh, it turns out Rhymelands were your long lost tribe all along. And she's like, what? Uh, so that was also <laughs> pretty fun. <laughs> I liked that whole sequence because, yeah, the Admiral very efficiently catches them up like, oh, yeah, it wasn't known in your time, but Romulans are this. Uh, they lost their home world. Now they're together on Vulcan because of the efforts of your brother. Blah, 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 blah. And I, I thought that was brilliant. Uh, the other thing. Having recently just watched Unification 1 and 2, that one line of Spock's, and I'm so glad that they actually used it in the episode, I immediately caught on to that where he's telling Picard, he says, it may take decades or even centuries, but blah, blah, blah. And I paused there. I was like, that's it. That's They were watching this. They got to that line and they went, ha. <laughs> Let me ask you, Dan, since you just watched that one recently too, did it bother you the fact that like, you know, we don't really know who the heck was even filming that in the first place? <laughs> that was kind of weird to me uh, looking back on it. See, people have brought that up and it doesn't really bother me at all because I'm assuming Picard had a communicator on or a tricorder on that could record all this stuff. It's easy to recreate someone's image with a hologram. And even putting all of that aside, 
this is not the first time Star Trek has done this by a long shot. Like I'm thinking of the Federation Council members watching Star Trek three in the chambers, seeing Krug go, get out of there. And the Enterprise blowing up. I'm like, OK, who filmed all of this for the so many wonderful watch? camera changes? Yeah. Like it's so cinematic. And yeah, no, this is hardly th- this is hardly the most egregious one and uh, not definitely not the first time they've done it. So. It didn't bother me at all. I'm thinking of the menagerie and they're watching the cage. Yeah, I love how that security footage is cut so perfectly. Yeah, but see that one, at least they had the explanation that the Telosians were creating the images. But even for ones where they don't explain it, Star Trek has like five more examples of that too. So Yeah, it didn't bother me either. I mean, it was cool to see Leonard Nimoy as Spock from the Unification. I'm assuming it was uh, Unification 2, that clip that we saw in this episode it was just it was just nice to have that but also to inform the audience that who isn't that familiar with those previous episodes to get a rundown of what he was doing and what was going on that led to this moment so it it was a nice scene it was it was fun to see that and yeah you just have to excuse there's some technology or there's some manner in which they were able to recreate that moment so the word navarre now i thought this was interesting too because i saw someone post this online about it's a word from somebody named Dorothy Jones from back in the 60s who was writing for I think it was T negative a fanzine that uh, the word means to form or to form into two Hmm. and I thought that was really cool that they would dig into fandom that far back to use that word in canon material that just excites me I love it when they dig into stuff like that that's pretty cool. I, I did appreciate that. Uh, also, the fact that Enterprise did the same as well, and they had the Vulcan starship Navarre as well. I didn't realize at the time that's probably also where that word came from, digging into fandom. So there's a long tradition of, of Star Trek writers pulling from some interesting sources. And, and I, I love that, you know, it's not even a, hey, see, look at this. It's It's just they've done it. And if you notice it, cool. If not, it's just a nice little detail for the super fans yeah there's some youtube dude i'm not even going to mention his name he just happened to pop up on my feed the other day and he's just like these people don't know star trek and i'm like okay i don't know but that's pretty obscure that this really this name this something from the 60s from fandom and fanzines like if these people don't know star trek how would they even know of this word they obviously know it I feel like that's a Kirsten Beyer. That's her fingerprints all over this. She's, you know, she's known as the keeper of canon on, in, in the writer's room. So, I, yeah, she's she's got her sources. She's a writer, right? They do the research. <laughs> I was also surprised to see that Navarre. Okay, well, let me, before I say this, I was going to say I'm surprised about Navarre no longer being part of the Federation. But at the same time, I'm not even sure how to refer to them. Like, Navarre's the planet name, but I'm not necessarily talking about the planet when I say Navarre isn't a member. The Vulcans aren't members. They still considered Vulcans and Romulans. Are they separate, you know, divisions of whatever? I mean, I, you know what I'm saying? I don't know if I'm making any sense. It seemed like there was some still uh, amount of cultural separation between the Romulans and the Vulcans. That, that's definitely very clear in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of, that part was a little bit odd to me also, because it's like they've been together for this many years. And I know that, you know, it's still there's obviously growing pains, but it's been a, it's been a bit of a time, hasn't it? I mean, I feel like there should have been a little bit more progress than where we're at. Of course, it just so happens that 
as it's been this season, once again, the Federation kind of helps bring everybody back together. Yeah, a little, little bit of a shock, the fact that uh, after all this time together, they still are at each other's throats a little bit. Yeah, that separation was a little bit surprising. I, I thought when they were first beaming on board, we'd just kind of have like uh, an amalgamated species, I guess, you know, after a few centuries of... of mixing and mingling. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely still those deep divisions. And we do get a Vulcan, a Romulan, and a Romulo-Vulcan. So I'm assuming they're like the 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 people who have mixed, but they've they've kind of created three separate camps. It's like it's like in Canada we have indigenous people, uh, the the colonists or the settlers, and then the Metis, which are are offspring of the the mixing of the two so yeah it's interesting that it's developed that way yeah and that's an interesting point too that it's they're not in perfect harmony but then you look at our own societies and we have mixes of different races and countries we still have issues there's still divisions that go on so it's not surprising in some ways that this would occur but to your point matthew i expected oh yeah they're all one now. They all get along just perfectly fine, and it's not exactly that way. That's definitely a sign of the kind of political things that Star Trek does, though. They've always been about that. They've always been about taking what's happening in the contemporary world and putting it into the sci-fi lens. So, yeah, well, while it might be kind of odd, as I'm saying that, you know, we, we believe that at this point, the Vulcans and Rhineland should be all happy hand-in-hand hand walking down the street together, but it makes sense if they're trying to reflect what the world is like today, that there's still going to be some issues, and they're trying to kind of show it through a fictional perspective that, well, it's not just you guys, but here's what we can do to kind of bring these together. So uh, on that part, though, it is kind of a nice touch for the sociopolitical level of Star Trek. And since Vulcan was a founding member of the Federation, they're no longer members. You know, it just shows that things change. Things always seem to happen. And some of the reason for that is because that the Federation was running out of dilithium and Navarre wanted to shutter the program because this SB-19 program they felt dangerous, and the Federation is like, no, we got to keep it going, and they believe that this caused the burn. And so they separated themselves from the Federation. There was a little hint in there where it was mentioned, well, there were other things that led up to it. That was like the straw that broke the camel's back, which really piqued my interest, too. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're building to some sort of story here with regards to the Federation and and its true nature at this time. Because, yeah, like you say, we get those hints. We get the feeling that there was something that caused some divisions before even all of this happened. But, like, let's just look at the founding worlds of the Federation. So Earth, Vulcan, Andor, and Tellar. Of those, we know of three of them, two for sure that have left the Federation, Earth and Vulcan, and Andor, which, if they haven't left the Federation, a, a good portion of their people are, are part of this uh, group that seems to be against the Federation's interests. So the, the Emerald Chain, it sounds like Andor has left as well. So what happened? Like, is, you know, Burnham advocates for the Federation here, but they haven't been there very long. Are are they just seeing what they want to see? And is the Federation kind of something different now? And uh, is is that sinister? I don't know. It's always been a plot point that I feel like they've been discussing throughout the various, various series. We've seen that happen in the TNG movies. We've seen DS9 with the Maquis beginning there and through Voyager as well. So they've always been kind of like teasing this sort of... Uh, not, maybe not necessarily separation, but some kind of corruption. And even actually back in, in TNG, the episode Conspiracy, that's like the first time you get it back in season one of there's some stuff happening, there's some collusion going on in, in the Federation. So for whatever reason, um, the Star Trek creative teams have always been interested 
in that sort of controversy, that sort of behind the scenes conspiracy going on in the Federation. I kind of wish I'd almost leave that plot point alone, though, because it's been done so many times. I mean, now we're kind of getting a lot more of a fleshed out kind of thing of a realization of what that would mean if the Federation did actually go south. Yeah, it's a plot point that uh, it's it's nice to see finally explored a little more in depth. So I am curious to see where it goes, but it has been a long time coming. So I'm hoping we find out more information from this president, Tarina. I feel like she's going to be very forthcoming with information now with the Federation and Burnham after this episode. And uh, I really like the performance of the actress who, who uh, played this part. I really enjoyed and kept wondering, by the way, if she was actually Vulcan or Romulan. Mm-hmm. Did you have any of those thoughts? It was in the back of my mind. Again, like early on where I thought maybe they were all just kind of one mixed species. I was wondering, but then later on, I, I was that was in the back of my mind as well, because we do know there are Romulans that have the forehead ridges and don't. So yeah, she could very well be Romulan. My feeling by the end of the episode was that she's Vulcan, but you never know. Maybe she's even a Romulo Vulcan, you know? Yeah, very well could be. That was my feeling as well. But also, I want to ask something else because I'm taking credit of like, oh, I love it when I pick up on things that I know are little Easter eggs. But this Takao and Ket thing that was brought up by Burnham, that's something new, right? I mean, or have we heard this before? Pretty sure that's new. Yeah, it's I'm not something I'm familiar with. <laughs> Yes. Okay. I thought it was new, <laughs> but I was like, I should probably look it up. Maybe it has been used before and I just forgot about it. But uh, how convenient is that, that she went to the Vulcan Science Academy and as a graduate, she can call for this that would allow to unearth deep scientific proofs in this quorum. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I like that they're using long established parts of her character to advance the plot. I, I think, I think you say convenient I, and, and from a story perspective, of course it is, but I like that because we're on Vulcan slash Navarre that, you know, we're really using those character elements from early on, you know, it's not totally something pulled out of left field. It's, it's actually like, it makes sense given the progression of the character and everything that we know about her. Yeah, it's a good point because, yeah, if she had not been part of Vulcan, I don't know what she could have done. You know, she wouldn't have, you know, this opportunity but because she is connected to Vulcan. This allows us to play with this character and have some deep rooted connections that she can pull from in order to get what she needs to get from them. And the fact that she's also Spock's sister, that's something that the Federation was exploiting in using her and getting there, which was also interesting to me how Admiral Vance just got that smirk on his face when he's like, you're Spock's sister. We can <laughs> use you. I thought, is this the first time we've actually seen him smile? <laughs> yeah, that kind of caught me off guard, <laughs> I have to admit. When he smiled, I was like, I started to worry. I was like, uh-oh, this, this doesn't look good. And I was like, oh, he actually is happy. He uh, likes this idea. <laughs> I mean, everybody in this in this new reality is kind of governed by uh, a sort of enlightened self-interest, right? So, you know, the the Federation, they they want to make themselves more of what they used to be. And I'd imagine losing Vulcan slash Navarre was, was a huge blow. So, you know, as the CNC of, of Starfleet, and we haven't really seen the civilian government yet. We don't know what that looks like. Is the Federation currently uh, a military junta under Starfleet or something, maybe? I don't know, because he does talk about contacting the diplomatic corps. He doesn't mention the Federation president or anything like that. But regardless, he's very invested in 
uh, the future of the Federation moving forward. So he definitely sees Burnham as an element he can use. And I, I think, make no mistake, they're using her. And I think she realizes that. And, and But she can also advance her own self-interests through this as well. So it's it's a little bit, you know, oh, hey, we've got Spock's sister. We've got a chip we can play and maybe get the Vulcans closer to us. Uh, I think that's like 99% of what he's concerned with in that moment. Yeah, I think Vance is just happy that he now can actually put a leash on Burnham and, you know, let her do her thing for the first time without having to worry because, yeah, she's one of them. So let her go ahead and do it. Do whatever she wants to do. It's fine by me now. Yeah, I think he's building uh, trust and interest more and more in her and the crew and probably not totally letting that on. But, Dan, you mentioned Federation president. Now I'm really curious. Yeah, who is the Federation president? I really want to know this. Yeah. Is it just Vance? Is Vance in charge of everything? <laughs> I mean, that's all how, almost how it comes across. But then I realize, yeah, he's just Starfleet commander in chief. So, yeah, I wonder who the Federation president is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably somebody we don't know. Well, but, I mean, uh, it would probably have to be, right? <laughs> I don't know. Unless somebody lives a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> or if it's the guy, I can't. I, I'm, I know, I don't remember his name. The guy, uh, Kovich, right? That interviewed hmm. Giorgio. Maybe he is. That could be. That's interesting. Could just be Riker hooked up to some sort of machine that's keeping him alive and keeping him able to walk over chairs. <laughs> <laughs> it's Barkley hooked up to that thing in the nth degree. Just <laughs> Perish the thought. So also real quick, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. I guess we don't follow that anymore. I thought that was an interesting take that Vulcans know you no longer use maxims and proverbs mm-hmm. they don't rely on them overly much as, as they used to and i like that like that's one thing i really enjoy in this episode is that it doesn't just play lip service to the idea of the vulcans and the romulans living together there are obvious very deep effects and influences that each culture has had on the other you know i feel like if we were in the universe, we would want to see, like in the Next Generation era, the Romulans come over to Vulcans and convert to Vulcanism and, and be logical and stuff. But that's not what's going to happen. You know, the the passion of the Romulans is going to influence the Vulcans and they're going to kind of meet somewhere in the middle. So, you know, I could see the Romulans thinking of Vulcan society as, you know, just too narrow minded and too focused on you know, we must always live our life by this instead saying no, like encounter things as they come and don't rely over much on what old dusty philosophers said and and make your own truth. I I think that's brilliant. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I agree. I think it's very much the Romulan influence on the Vulcan society. But I also kind of wonder if this is just something that had been many, many years in the making, because if you really look at the history of the Vulcans in Star Trek, uh, because where else would they be? Uh, if we really look at their history, uh, it, it's like, you know, we see them in Enterprise where they're very much kind of afraid to really do too much with the humans at that point. And we've kind of seen them almost become jaded over time. So uh, I think a lot of that too just might be them and just feeling like maybe they've been taking advantage of over the centuries or over the years. Uh, and they're kind of trying to come to terms to that also. They feel a little bit traumatized from what happened with the Federation. There's They're dealing with a lot of different things here, but I think a lot of those things have been building up through the past. Yeah. And also, uh as we're talking, it just reminded me of the whole conversation that Saru had with the president, Tarina. And she mentions how Navarre is no longer part of the Federation. He's like, oh, yeah, the Romulans probably didn't want to stay. And she's like, no, the Romulans wanted to stay in the Federation. It was the Vulcans that didn't. I'm like, wow, what a reverse there. I mean, the Romulans owe a lot to the Federation because of Picard, mostly. Uh, whereas the Vulcans, they've just kind of been over the years 
basically kind of used and abused almost by the Federation, taken, grant, taken for granted, I feel like. What did the Klingons say? Vulcans are well known as the intellectual puppets of the Federation. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> yeah, and I like your point about the about Picard, you know. They have their loyalty towards him, so they probably built a loyalty towards the Federation, which is so interesting when they used to fight against them. This is what's fun about taking this into the future. There's so much play in here that you can just mess with things and evolve things and surprise us with new things. I'm really pleased that they haven't been afraid to do some really interesting and different things. Like they, it feels like they sat down and said, okay, let's plot out 900 years and like what could change. And at the same time, it's also not, doesn't seem to be just change for the sake of change. Like they seem to have thought out, you know, what are the processes, what are the effects and the, the causes, causes and effects that would, that would make things go in this direction. And what are the end results that we see now based mostly on what's happened with Vulcan here, but you know, also some other things that I, I think they've put a lot of thought into it. I think the other thing too, is they do have a lot of creative freedom in that this is so many years in the future that there could be more Trek shows and none of what's happening right now in Discovery is going really necessarily affect what's going to happen in other newer trek shows because the timeline is just so big now there's such a big separation so uh, again we're just we're getting a lot more freedom and we're still offering a lot of again the word freedom uh to those other shows that come out in the future with all new casts all new ships all new whatever yeah they're not being too specific about too many things that have happened in the past that puts every other show in a corner and to your point it's so far in the future that we don't have to go so far back in the past and to define things if this was taking place in the 25th century then you know every show that's taking place in the 24th century going in the 25th century really has to stay close to what was established in this other show but because it's so far in the future it gives them that breathing room and that said too there's no reason that they still can't mess with the timeline at all either I mean, I know there's the whole temporal accords right now, but this is a discovery. They do what they want. So, you know, who knows? Maybe they'll find something. That's kind of like one of my, my thoughts, like long game for the show is that now they're in the future. Are they going to do a Voyager and try and like fix the timeline somehow? Employ the Janeway protocol. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, when the Vulcans, Romulans beam up to the discovery for the quorum, we have President Tarina talking to Saru and Burnham and saying that they're beaming up someone who will be Burnham's Shalan Kakai, and we don't see the person's face. At this point, what were you thinking? Who did you think it might be? I can't really say because I, I do have to admit uh, I had seen some screen caps that I knew that this particular character would show up in this episode, which was unfortunate. I got a little spoiled, but uh, yeah. Dan, you got spoiled. That's no fun. <laughs> it happens. It happens. People send me stuff. <laughs> yeah. Did you think anything of it, Matthew, when she beamed up? No, honestly, I didn't really think much of it. It was uh, probably my favorite surprise of the episode. I really love that moment. Again, another really real moment between the actors there. Like it, it just felt so great. And I'm happy that I wasn't spoiled about that one. Because, uh, yeah, like that's like one of the really great surprises, I think, of this episode. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah, I, I I, don't know. I mean, most people I've read online or I've talked to said they didn't see that coming. They didn't expect it to be Burnham's mom. Yeah, yeah it's a big surprise, man. I wish they went maybe. Uh, they, they did go into pretty, some pretty good detail about how she got picked up there. I guess that was, I don't want to say it's like a plot hole or anything like that. I don't want to be that nitpicky jerk. But it, it was kind of just interesting, the fact that how convenient that she did get found and she'd end up on, on Navarre and all that happened. But um, still a really amazing moment for Burnham to get that 
that reconnection with her mom again. Well, and not only that, but she's a member of the Kawat Malat. I mean, she's a sister of them. That's surprising to me too, which connects to Picard. So I thought that was pretty cool. What a twist. That was really cool. The Kawat Milat were one of my favorite elements from Picard and that idea of absolute candor and, you know, Romulan warrior nuns. I mean, how cool is that, right? So I, I felt like bringing that plot element in and making her a part of them. I thought that was a really interesting plot element for them to use. And also the revelation that the Kowat Milat were instrumental in kind of easing that transition. And I was kind of like, well, of course they were. That's yeah. They would totally be that bridge between the Romulan world of ultimate secrecy and the Vulcan world of logic. Like they, they would make that bridge. That was really cool. Yeah. And I also like how, her mother, Gabrielle Burnham, helps Michael through this whole process that she's going through because the episode starts where we left off in the previous episode where Michael really doesn't know her place. She's lived in this century for a year without the Discovery crew. She's been doing things on her own. Now she's under Starfleet again. She's on board the Discovery, but she has her own mission she needs to fulfill and not just about the burn, but a mission for herself and her self-discovery. And she's really questioning, do I even belong here anymore or should I go off on my own and, and do it my way and, and go off with book? And this is the thing she's struggling with. And she's had conversations with Tilly and others about it and she's thinking through it. And then her mother is there and helps talk her through it. And I love it when we get to the quorum and her mother is basically teaching Burnham this lesson right there in front of everybody. And I could just see Michael just like, why are you doing this now? <laughs> like, What is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, definitely an interesting scene. I, I, I enjoyed the kind of psychological bits at play here. And, you know, Burnham is a character who she's, you know, obviously gone through a lot of trauma since being here in the 32nd century. You know, her character has kind of yo-yoed a bit throughout the season, which, you know, is a little bit frustrating. I feel like last episode, it was going one way in this episode, we get that rectified back this way, which is, you know, good to see. I kind of expected that arc to play out a little longer, and I'm sure she'll still have some mixed feelings and, and you know, barriers to... uh her ultimate goal and stuff. But, you know, at the same time, it, it seems to get resolved fairly quickly, but the manner in which it's resolved with her mother kind of being the impetus for that, I thought was a, was a really cool way to go. I want to go back to what you just said, Bruce, about this being Burnham's uh, self-discovery. And I think that's kind of like the biggest thing about this show as a whole, you know, with Star Trek shows, you always have to look at them as a whole. You can't really take one episode or two episodes out of context. Like it really is very much about an entire series and really with Discovery more so than any other series we've seen so far. And I think the biggest difference between Discovery and every other Trek show we've seen so far is the fact that this show is very much about internal things, whereas Next Generation, DS9, it's all very much external. Like, yes, there's been plenty of character development and things like that, but this is kind of the first show, and even more so than Picard, uh, that we're really getting to delve into the psyche of a person. And in particular, Michael Burnham, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, I think. But one of the things I saw a lot of people complaining about is the fact that Michael Burnham cries and she cries a lot this season and she's crying so much. Everybody's like, why is she crying so much? This isn't Star Trek. Wham, wham, wham. You know, for me, I feel like this is the whole point of discovery is the fact that in this case, in particular, for this episode, we're watching a person who's been raised on Vulcan by Vulcans. And here she is now crying in front of them. She's now showing emotion in front of the people who raised her. 
and that's partly thanks to the Romulans who are helping them open up a society emotionally. But here we are seeing her literally face her past, and she's challenging her past by crying, by showing these emotions, by showing outrage and anger and things like that. So this is her on her journey to self-discovery. And I think this episode is probably the most critical and really the midpoint, I think, for the entire series, because we're seeing her change. We're really seeing that discovery happen. This season has been about, you know, do I want to be part of the Federation still? Am I going to stay with the book? Am I going to go off and continue to explore space and do sciencey things? Uh, in this case, it's been a struggle for her since day one of the show, since episode one, to try and find that self, try and find out who Michael Burnham is. And here we are now where she has clearly made a turning point and you know, we haven't talked about it yet, but Tilly, Saru, these other characters as well, who are the mains that we're focusing on, this episode really shows all of them finding that comfortable level for themselves. So that's just something I've really noticed particularly with this episode. Yeah, that's a great way to summarize it, for sure. And and yeah, not just the episode, but yeah, for the entire series. And you're right, I've seen a lot of criticism of, oh, Burnham's crying in every episode. I mean, all the characters are actually crying at some point in, in an episode. But it's also, yeah, what they've been through. Yeah, we're so used in Star Trek to getting these self-contained self-contained episodes where the mission happens and then it's over. We're seeing, no pun intended, the long burn in these episodes. I mean, this is a journey that's taking place from season one up until now. And this is a personal journey for all of them, and especially for Burnham, at everything she's been through. If you had been thrown 900 years into the future and you're cut off from family, friends, and your crew, and you're trying to save the universe, and you're trying to find your place, like, yeah, it's going to be very emotional. And then you you rediscover your, your mother. You know, I mean, there's just a lot going on here. And she's falling in love. And I mean, there's just so many things on her personal journey that she has to figure out and deal with. It's a lot. I mean, Burnham literally let her hair down this season. It's almost like a visualization of what she's going on mentally. Because look back at her season one. She's got her hair the way it was done then. Now it, it's just, it's so loose. It's wild. It's doing what it wants. I think that's a very important thing to note, too, that people are kind of overlooking is just her her physicality as well has changed from what we've seen her in, in the stiff Michael Burnham of the first you know six or seven episodes in season one. Yeah, and she wants to do what she wants to do. And that's why sometimes I question, does she need to stay in Starfleet to do what she wants to do. But we discover in here that she needs Starfleet and they need her. And if she's going to change and and help the Federation, she's got to do it within. But she needs to learn to trust them. And if anything, they need to learn to trust her. And I believe this is going on to our next topic then, but I believe that Saru really does trust Burnham more so than he did when we saw him in the first season. And yeah, he had to demote her, but I think his plan all along when he did that is to put her back into the first officer seat. I think it's also taken some pressure off himself to kind of not have to worry about her as much and let her do her thing. Like Saru is like the best friend everybody wants to have. He's going to be there to support you no matter what you do. And he's going to do the right thing for you. And for, for Burnham, and I think she knows it too, the right thing for her is not to be held back by being second in command, by letting her do what she has to do on her own and have the freedom to do it. Yeah, the the idea of... Burnham being the first officer, I think that that is, like you say, the long game as well. But yeah, she's got to find her way back to that as well. And she was put in that position too quickly, I think. And the warning signs were there that she was very reluctant and maybe went into that role because she felt that's what was expected of her. And I think part of her journey this season is to not 
necessarily fit into the mold of exactly what's expected of her, but do what she needs to do, if that makes sense. Before we move on to Tilly, I do want to mention, I do like how the quorum ends where Burnham basically walks away because she sees there's friction between the Romulans and the Vulcans and the Romulo Vulcans and so on and so forth. And that, you know, if this is going to cause any friction and cause any more problems between them, she's just going to do this on her own. And again, doing it on her own. She's going to find her data. She will keep looking and looking and find all the information she needs. And guess what? She's saying, in a sense, I'm above all you and the fact that I will share the data with you. We're all in this together. And whether you realize that or not, I realize it. And whatever I find, I'm going to send to you. So I trust you. You may may not trust me, but I trust you. I also enjoy that she recognizes that the conclusion she's come to isn't completely necessarily supported by the evidence she has. Like, I, I like that she acknowledges that you know, my interpretation is one possible interpretation, but I don't have all the data. This is an effort to get more data. I can't be absolutely 100% sure that the burn wasn't caused by Navarre, et cetera, et cetera. So I think on that basis as well, she's being more honest with herself and with uh, the quorum as well, which, you know, I thought was an interesting uh, way for the episode to go there. I've started to call that the Burnham Gambit because I feel like that's something she's done throughout the seasons so far is like, she's like, yeah, I agree with the point you're making about me being this or that, but also this, uh, that's kind of like her, her been her, her go-to uh, argument these days. And by the way, just a little bit off topic, but we haven't mentioned it yet, but did you guys also enjoy watching the Vulcans and Romulans argue with each other without showing actual emotion? <laughs> that was great. Yeah. I, I, I thought part of me was thinking like, it's a, it's a little on the nose that we're seeing that deep division expressed that way in this setting. But at the same time, it was a good way for to let the audience and Burnham know that these divisions still exist and that it is really fragile. So yeah, I appreciated that scene and how it was acted by everyone involved. I think each of them had their interesting, unique perspective that they really brought in a really cool way to that. Yeah, I, I agree. I rewatched it and I found it interesting how much I didn't pick up how much emotion there really was coming from the Romulan, even though he's not overly emotional, but he was the more emotional of the three. <laughs> but uh, yeah, when I first watched it, I thought they were, there was really no emotions. They were all being logical, but then I picked up on the Romulan a little more. And then even like the, the kind of, I, I there's, there's, there's a particular Vulcan haughtiness, I guess, where they're like, you're being emotional and I'm not. And there's kind of like this, Hmm. Like, I am vindicated because you're being slightly emotional. And even that was just, there's a very thin veneer of that from the the purest Vulcan guy, too. Vulcans and Romulans are really all just Jersey Shore wives, let's face it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the guy who played the Vulcan, I saw him on Twitter make a comment that he has very small ears that he's always been made fun of of having small ears, and now he's going to be made fun of of having pointy ears. <laughs> <laughs> Those were definitely some ears, so I'm not going to argue with that at all. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I think uh, the long play is that Burnham is going to come back to the first officer position, and I think Saru is just kind of waiting that out by putting Tilly there, because he does say she's the temporary acting first officer. So what do you guys think about Tilly? being first officer i've seen a lot of things online about this one matthew what do you think i am still very mixed on this one but i think i understand why he's doing it because really tilly is the conscience 
of the Discovery crew. In terms of experience, maybe not the best and certainly not the most knowledgeable about crew operations, that kind of things at this point. She's still so young and new to all of this. But in terms of just being there on the emotional and mental level, like she is the right choice for that part. Definitely for sure. Like everybody can trust her. Everybody knows they can come to her. Uh, she's and she'll do her duty. So I think she covers all the bases that make it first the person you want to be to have your second in command. Yeah, I at first was was definitely very like questioning of this decision. But then like kind of in retrospect, looking at them building up to this moment, I was like, oh, OK, they've been kind of working towards this. And it and it makes a bit of sense for sure. Uh, I, I do have to imagine that that Harry Kim is just spinning in his grave somewhere. But <laughs> but, you know, she has a lot of experience, maybe not to be like a permanent first officer or anything like that. But I think in this moment for what Saru needs, she kind of fits things. I do really like that Tilly asks the question, kind of proving that like she's asking the right questions and and thinking this through. When she asks Saru, like, did you pick me because I have enough experience or because I'm compliant? Are you just picking me because I'll be I'll be a little yes person and do whatever you say? I, I thought that was really interesting that she asked that question. And, and Saru doesn't exactly say no, but I, I think his motives are more pure than that. And I think, like you say, she's the conscience of this crew. She she has the crew and the ship's best interests as, at heart, as shown in the last episode where you know, she tells Saru, you have to tell the Admiral what Burnham has done. I know it sounds like I'm betraying my friend, but we have to, we can't let this stain Discovery's reputation, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think he's made the right decisions for the right reasons. And uh, I, I think, like we've said, this is temporary. This is, she's just acting first officer. It's not going to be a permanent position. When I heard him say temporary, I thought, okay, I can buy this because if he's sitting there and he's thinking, gee, who do I make my first officer? And he looks at his bridge crew and he's looking at all the different options and he needs time to really consider that and figure out who he wants to put in that position. But they have this mission they have to go on first that he might say, well, I need a temporary first officer right now. And if I pick one of the bridge crew, it will be assumed that that person will be the permanent one. And I haven't made the decision yet. So I'd like to put somebody in that position that really isn't in the running, that would be in there temporarily until I make the decision. So to me, it made sense that it would be somebody like Tilly, who also serves on the bridge, who is the lowest ranking officer on the bridge that just fills the position temporarily because she's not in line for it permanently. However, if Saru does make her permanent, this gives us an opportunity as the temporary acting first officer for her to prove herself and to prove that she really needs to be in that position and if he makes it permanent then we've got the well look what she did look how she handled it and look how the crew respected that so it makes sense now that she gets promoted and now is permanently put in the position i don't think they're going to do that but if that if that were going to happen this gives them the flexibility the writers to give the viewers that reasoning as to why she should permanently be there and also the fact that Tilly is on that path, like she's made it clear that she wants to be a captain someday. She's on the command path on some trajectory to there. How good is that going to look on her resume that she was made acting first officer for X number of weeks uh, as an ensign? Like, that's pretty great. I'm pretty sure that by the end of the season, she's going to be promoted to lieutenant no matter what. It's about mm -hmm. time. I think it's going to happen. And that'll be probably her permanent rank for at least for the rest of 
whatever time we're going to have with her. But uh, yeah, she's clearly rising up in the ranks, which is pretty great for her. I know people love that. It, it seems like there's there's basically two camps. You either love Tilly or you hate Tilly. But then again, if you hate Tilly, you probably also hate Discovery. And I don't know why you're still listening to this podcast, but uh, <laughs> yeah. if you are one of those people, you're wrong. Um, but <laughs> yeah, you know, everybody's been going on their journeys. And as much as everybody complains, again, I'm going back to a lot of the complaints because I'm in a lot of like Facebook groups and I see a lot of different perspectives uh, from a lot of different people. And most of them, I shouldn't say most of them, but there's far too many of them that look at the show very negatively through the lens of it's just the Michael Burnham show, but it's really the Michael Burnham, Saru and Tilly show. It really is those three characters and they're all going through their life-changing journeys together. Uh, it just so happens that yes, Burnham is the central focus, but look at how much Saru and Tilly have gone through as well in the last three seasons. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. a very good point. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that she's on a command track, Dan, to your point, yeah, to me makes a lot of sense that, you know, I looked at this also as a training situation that Saru's putting her in, giving her the opportunity to gain that experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it really is a Saru, Tilly, Burnham show, just like a Kirk, Spock, McCoy, in a sense, you know, but I do like how they utilize the rest of the cast and the rest of the crew on the series. And then I like how they, the crew supports Tilly in the whole say yes scene, because we really have to have the crew buy in to Tilly being first officer for us to accept it, too. Yeah, that was a that was a fun scene. You know, the typical discovery, swelling music, high emotions scene. We seem to get these on a fairly regular basis. This one I, I enjoyed, you know, it was the, you know, say yes, say yes, and then kind of undercut nicely by Burnham's oh did I miss the really cool say yes moment or whatever <laughs> that was that was pretty funny I felt like it might have been a little too too much uh because it was just kind of silly to extend to I enjoyed it as a guilty pleasure kind of thing but it felt like I was watching like a pharmaceutical ad like say yes <laughs> pharmaceutometamine <laughs> side effects main click could use it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's pretty awesome I will say though I feel like this even though it feels very unrealistic that an ensign and a fairly new ensign gets promoted to first officer like this, the, although temporary seems more realistic to me right now than Kirk being promoted right out of oh. the Academy into the captain position in the Kelvin time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The less said about that, the better. <laughs> what happens in Kelvin stays in Kelvin. Yeah. You're here. <laughs> Kirk's just that good. No matter what universe he's in. I don't know. He's, no one seems to have a problem when he saves the universe, but whatever. <laughs> uh, okay, so final thoughts, Matthew. What do you think of this episode? You know, this has been a really good season overall, I want to add, too. I feel like this has been the best season of Discovery. They, I think, finally found not only where they want to go with the show, but they've also found the best format for everything. Uh, I feel like, you know, I mentioned at the start of the show, there was a lot of shortcomings I felt they were overcoming. And for me, that's meant the season having a lot more action-packed episodes spread throughout the show while also having a lot more of these episodes here where we're focused on the emotional and the mental aspects. And while this episode might qualify as like a bottle episode, because for the most part, it's just all on the ship. It's nothing really new. We haven't seen before, no different places. I I think that it's still the most important episode of the season. And maybe it's a jump for me to say for the whole series at this point, but I think it's, this is a really very impactful moment in the entire show. One of the most important lines was said in this episode too. And that was said by Saru when he was talking to the president and he said, we learn our greatest lessons when we pay our heaviest price. And I think that quote right there summarizes the entire show. So for me, I think this was a really important episode. It might not be my favorite of the season. I definitely don't think it is, but I think it's a real turning point episode for the the thinking patterns and the emotional mental levels of everybody we've seen on the show so far. I really like this one. Yeah, I, I 
I have to agree with pretty much everything you said there. I really enjoyed this episode. Ever since the the revelation of the title Unification 3, I've been looking towards this episode as like, what is this going to be? What What is this going to be about? And, you know, I, I also wasn't letting myself get my expectations too high because, you know, that's a danger as well. But I think this episode met my expectations. It was, there was enough novelty in returning to... Uh, the home world of the Vulcans, uh, you know, rather than calling it Vulcan, I guess, because it's Navarre now. I got to get that in, into my head. But, you know, to see where where this species has come and w- following unification with the Romulans after 900 years, they've introduced enough novelty and interesting stuff into this that I'm on board with with what they're presenting here. The story itself, I think the the personal stakes for Burnham were really uh, fun and interesting. And I think it, it marks a really important step on her journey. Like you say, a turning point and also the joy in her learning about Spock's destiny and, and what he's accomplished. I think that was evident. And I, I just really enjoyed that moment of connecting with Burnham and her feelings here. It, it's rare that this character in particular gets moments to experience pure joy And to be able to see that in this episode, I think was a lot of fun. I think we've got a lot to learn about the Federation at this point and where it is on its journey. And I think we get some hints of that in this episode. I'm curious to see where that goes. I I think by the end of the season, we'll have a better picture of what the Federation looked like when it fell apart after the burn and what it will look like going forward. And I'm really eager to see that. I like the big picture stuff here. So I'm hoping we get more of that, but yeah, really enjoyed this episode. I think I have to give it a rating of one dubiously recorded Spock, uh, which was still a real joy to see. (laughs) I'd like the fact that they're still utilizing Spock in her journey, because I thought once we get into the future, well, you know, we've played with the whole Spock sister thing, but now we're still playing with that here in this episode. And it's not just that she's Spock's sister, but Spock is her brother. You know, it's not like one trumps the other in this and that, you know, both have an influence on each other's lives. And just to see her journey through this and what's happening with the Vulcans and the Romulans and all the things that you guys just said, I I agree with a hundred percent. I really love this episode. I, yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily it's my favorite, but it's getting to a point that there's so many favorites, but it's up there. This season really is turning out to be, I think, my favorite. Each season's getting better and better to me. So I really enjoy this. And Matthew, I want to go back to something you said earlier when we started the show about the title of Unification 3, that this is something you don't feel appropriate for this episode or you don't like? I'm still undecided about it because it definitely feels like blatant fan service. And there's one thing to be meta. It's another thing to be kind of fan servicey. And at what point does fan service too much fan service? So looking at this episode, I don't think it needed to be called Unification 3 because yes, it is a continuation of what happened with the events of Spock in that episode of TNG, but it's also a culmination of a lot of events throughout Star Trek history. So I can understand why they went with that title. But I think also giving it that title puts a lot of weight on its shoulders that it maybe didn't need to have. So uh, I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are, because I'm still kind of conflicted about it. I mean, I like it. I I think it works for me because to me, it's the bookend to what happened in Unification 1 and 2, meaning now we see the results of those episodes. 
And because we see a clip from those episodes with Spock, then it just, it, it ties it in like it is a sequel. It's a continuation of that, even though it's not a direct storyline to it. But the events of that are very heavy and present in this. And we find the results of those two episodes in it. So I'm okay with it. Yeah, I felt like it added a weight to that revelation to this episode that it it's kind of not just like, oh, something that happened in the past. It's kind of hanging over this episode as a, as a constant reminder, like Spock and, and what he did there and, and his efforts are why we are where we are now. And I mean, the episode still would have felt like that, but I feel like with the added weight of the title, it just kind of makes it more echoing through the episode, if that makes sense. I, I don't know. It's hard to, it's it's hard to know like what the universe would be like if this was uh, named journey to Navarre instead or something like that. Right. Like, I, I don't know, but I feel like it does have uh, an impact on my perception of the episode. I definitely can't think of any other name to really title it with. So, I mean, it does fit. So, you know, I, I, maybe I'm just playing devil's advocate more than anything else. Cause it doesn't disturb me to the point that I'm like, this episode is stupid, but uh, it's definitely <laughs> a little bit weird. It's definitely a little bit of a callback. I like it. Maybe I don't like it still, but I don't like I don't dislike it enough that I'm like bleh thumbs down on that. I, I would say I like it better than that hope is you part one because <laughs> I don't know where the part two is. <laughs> I'm still waiting for Angel 2. Come on. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Matthew. I really appreciate it. Uh, we'll have you on our next episode and find more uh, about what you're doing in your podcast. But in the meantime, where can people find you online? If anybody wants to learn more about Trek Untold, you guys can check us out on all the social medias, all of them. That's uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, just at Trek Untold. And if you guys want to check out the show, you can look us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts, just search for Trek Untold and you'll find us. And Dan, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Kertrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And you can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions. And you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex and on Instagram. It's just Admiral Rex. And yeah, all that other stuff. We have our email address at positively track at gmail.com. And yeah, on Twitter, positive track, whatever. Just Google positively track. We're there. You can find us. So thank you everyone for joining us. And until next time, live long and stay positive. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.